Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. Before we get to today's show, Jay and I wanted to let you know about a change in our format and why we're making it. When we started the Politics Guys, we had two main goals. The first was to provide the sort of reasoned and thoughtful liberal conservative debate we felt was sadly lacking in the media. The second was to not blindly follow the weekly news cycle with all of its scandal, sensationalism, and pseudo-news, but instead to focus on a few truly important things each week and provide deeper and more thoughtful analysis of them than we typically saw. Now, we feel we've done a pretty good job of meeting that first goal, though there have been a few times where I've gotten sort of worked up on various issues, especially during the presidential nomination season where Bernie Sanders did occasionally bring out my inner crusader. Now, as for that second goal, not getting sucked into the trivialities of the news cycle, well, we can do better, and we will, starting with this episode. What this means on a practical level is that instead of spending a few minutes on the biggest four or five stories of the last week, which is what we've typically been doing of late, We'll pick out two or occasionally maybe three things and really try to drill down to talk about what's behind the headlines, how the story ties into the fundamental beliefs and worldviews of the people involved, and what the best available research and evidence can add to our understanding. Now, we think you'll like this new direction, which isn't actually new, but really a renewed commitment to our founding values. We do this show for you, which means that we're always really interested in what you think, and we hope you'll get in touch to let us know how you feel about this change. Thanks. I also wanted to let you know that Jay's taking a well-deserved break this week, and filling in for him is Trey Orndorff, who some of you may know from his work in the Politics Guys newsletter, as well as his many contributions to the Politics Guys Twitter feed. Trey's a former student of mine who went on to get his Ph.D. in political science, and he's now an associate professor at Daytona State College. He's also the rarest of rare breeds in the political science professorate, a non-liberal. I think you'll find that Trey's political views line up very well with Jay's, which is why I feel he'll be a great co-host this week. And we encourage you to let you know, to let, sorry, to let us know what you think of Trey. And if you like what you hear, we could be inviting him back to co-host on a semi-regular basis. Finally, the Politics Guys wouldn't be possible without the financial support of our incredibly generous listeners, as well as our sponsors, who we really hope you'll chuck out. So they'll keep on advertising with us and we'll be able to keep on doing what we're doing. This week, we're fortunate to have two sponsors. The first is Upside.com the best new way to buy business travel. Even if you're not a business traveler, I bet you know someone who is, and you should definitely tell them about Upside. Here's what's great about it. Every time you buy a trip at Upside, you save a ton of money, and they give you an Amazon gift card worth $100, $200, even $300 every single time. Now, the way Upside does it is to bundle your flights and hotel together for one low price. 
Bundling saves money, especially on business travel, so Upside gives you free Amazon gift cards. Now, if you're a frequent business traveler, your company saves a ton of money and you can get thousands of year, uh, thousands of dollars a year just for buying your air and hotel together at Upside. Plus, you still get all your miles. My wife and I travel for political science conferences, and so I checked out Upside right away, and sure enough, their bundling saved money and there was that Amazon gift card on top of it. So if you're shopping for business travel, seriously, check out Upside.com. Now, I'm supposed to say it takes just three minutes, but actually it took me less than that to see how much I could save by buying a flight and hotel together. And again, there's also that Amazon gift card, which is really great. And Politics Guys listeners get a special deal. Use the code BIZTRIP, that's B-I-Z-T-R-I-P, and you're guaranteed to get at least a $200 Amazon gift card for your first trip. That's BizTrip, the code that gets you at least a $200 Amazon gift card free. How can you not do it? Save big on travel and get a big gift card every trip. Upside.com. That's Upside.com. Minimum purchase required. See site for complete details. Our second sponsor today is Blue Apron, the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the United States. Blue Apron makes it possible for anyone to cook great meals with fresh ingredients. And these meals don't only taste great, they work to support a sustainable food system. Now that's particularly important to me because I am a big food sustainability advocate. We should probably do a show on the politics of food at some point here. And that's thanks largely to my wife. She's also a political scientist and she does a lot of research in this area. Now what I also really like is if there's something you don't eat, totally no problem for Blue Apron. I mean, I stay away from red meat. Kimberly, that's my wife, doesn't eat any meat at all, and there are still tons of great meals for both of us. And also, you get amazing new recipes every week, like lemongrass burgers and cabbage slaw with sriracha mayonnaise and pickled carrots, seared salmon and roasted potato salad with pickled mustard seeds and creme fraiche sauce. I mean, we're talking impressive meals here. Everything is pre-portioned, ready to go, incredibly clear instructions with pictures and everything. It takes less than 40 minutes and costs less than $10 per person per meal. I've eaten a bunch of Blue Apron meals now, and I am a seriously big fan. It is great stuff. And check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com TPG. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash TPG. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. We start today with a look back at the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Now, right away, you might wonder why we do that. After all, just a few minutes ago, I said we wouldn't be talking about pseudo-news, and this sort of fake arbitrary deadline is about as pseudo as it gets. Even President Trump himself said as much, calling it at times an artificial barrier, not very meaningful, and a ridiculous standard. Now, pretty much everyone seems to agree, but that hasn't kept the media from pumping out tons of 100-day scorecards or the Trump administration from doing really everything in its power to spin its accomplishments in the most positive light. So, why are we bothering? Well, I think there are a few good reasons, and we're going to talk about them. First, to consider why this 100-day thing has become such a big deal. Second, to look at what, if anything, a president's first 100 days can tell us about what the next 1,360 days of the term might be like. Third, 
to consider what it means to have a good or successful presidency in the first place and how much of that is even in the president's control. And finally, to discuss the likelihood of a successful Trump presidency and what might have to happen for that to occur. So let's get started. So, Trey, why is 100 days such a big deal to so many people, do you think? It's a great question. As a matter of fact, you know, nobody thought about the first 100 days for the first 31 presidents, right? Um, it's going to be FDR in the spring of 1933 who's going to set this new standard. Uh, and as a matter of fact, he creates that idea on one of his, what he would have considered his new media pushes, uh, which was radio. It was the fireside chat. Uh, the idea that he was going to get a certain number of things done and he was going to do that in the first 100 days. And so it's FDR who makes the very first push for that. And since then, we've had, as you've talked about, that kind of media scorecard, um, or as NPR has put it, you know, like it or not, it's the standard um, since FDR. And do you think there's anything that a president can do to push back against that in, in any meaningful way, if it is such an artificial standard? Well, yeah, I know I think we're going to talk about that a little bit more when we talk about success. Um, but while presidents might want to push back against it, it's in their interest to not because it allows them potentially to try to get more things done. Um, I'm going to actually agree with Patrick uh, Maney, who's from Boston College, and he argues that the idea itself is kind of flawed, that it's actually crippled presidents. But in the short term, it always seems like the better option. Uh, and so presidents consistently go after that as a way to try to capture as much of their agenda early on as they can. Right. And, and even even presidents who seem at least in part to want to you know, realize that it's a bad thing and push back against it, like President Trump has done pretty clearly. Uh, there was a lot coming out of the White House, you know, highlighting uh, legislative accomplishments and and so forth. So pretty, pretty clearly they're playing that game, just like every president since FDR has played that game. Yeah, they have. And as a matter of fact, I mean, when you look at the actual numbers, it's fascinating to see that it's not always as successful as we think. Um, Clinton in 93 is going to sign 22 laws, which was the second highest um, until you had Trump here in 17 with 29 in his last 100 days. Um, you know, Bush, uh, 2001, is only going to get seven laws signed in the first 100 days. You take a look at the total number of pages they've had. As a matter of fact, it's Obama who has the, the biggest total number of pages at 1,600. Um, so what's fascinating is, is it's really more about the frame, the media frame of those 100 days than it is about anything that we can kind of quantify to say, you know, who's successful and what does it mean to be successful? Yeah, and, and it seems to me that so much of this depends on external circumstances. You know, FDR got a lot done in his first 100 days, but there was, a, you know, a pretty big uh, national crisis and there were pretty big Democratic majorities. And, and so in, in those sort of times, you would expect more quick action, but you can actually make the argument that trying to do big things in just 100 days might be rushing it a bit much. I totally agree. As a matter of fact, when you take a look at the scholarly literature on it, um, there's really no correlation between individual presidents and getting more or less done in the first 100 days. It all, all has to do with those systemic variables that you talked about. So F, uh, FDR has these crisis conditions. And I know that Jay's talked about, you know, you never want to let a good crisis go unwasted. I think it really comes back down to those variables and not the individual. 
Yeah, I, absolutely. I definitely agree. And, and, you know, we should point out that 100 days, that's that's just under 7% of a presidential term. So that, that's, you know, almost nothing, essentially. And people who've, who've studied the relationship between that 7% and the remaining 93 plus percent, really, you can't find too much of a relationship between what happens or doesn't happen in that first 100 days and the entire four-year term. And, you know, I think there are a number of good reasons for that. And one we just talked about is it oftentimes takes time to do big things unless there is a major crisis, in which case you have to kind of rush and get something done right away. Right. I mean, as a matter of fact, even President Obama, his uh, signature achievement, the Affordable Health Care Act, is not something that gets done in the first hundred days. That comes much later. Absolutely. And, you know, and when you talk about and you referred to this earlier, the the number of things that you do and the number of executive orders, I mean, that really doesn't matter so much. And, and even page count isn't necessarily a great indicator. It's what you might call the, the historical impact of these things. And, and that's the sort of thing that, uh, you know, that it takes time to measure that and understand that. And so, which is another reason why I think these metrics that are often used are, are very flawed. I agree. I mean, it is interesting to take a look. I mean, you mentioned now executive orders. It is fascinating how through time it would appear that executive orders are increasing during the first hundred days, which probably is ind indicative of presidents attempting to get more done uh, besides Congress, because you're right. You can't get those big pieces of legislation passed in 100 days. That's just not the way Congress was designed to operate. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people uh, looking at all this are saying, well, one year would be a lot better benchmark, certainly. And and I'm sure there will be reviews after the first year, but but pretty clearly as flawed as it is, 100 days doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. No, I, I wouldn't suggest that we're ever going to get that out of the media frame. It, it's just too ingrained. Yeah, I mean, FDR has just had such a immense, you know, uh, impact on how we see the presidency. You know, really, you could argue the first kind of modern president. And so many years after his presidency is in the past, he still is that benchmark by which so many people judge uh, uh, successful presidencies. Yeah, listeners might not know that, you know, even in the scholarly world, we have the pre-modern and the modern presidency. And that and that moment is FDR himself. Yeah, absolutely. Right or wrong. Yeah. And, 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 you know, let's talk a little bit more about that idea of successful presidencies. And, you know, I think there's an assumption here that, well, success means just pumping out a lot of stuff. And 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 I guess I take issue with that a little bit. And so, you know, what do you think it means to have a good or successful presidency, I, to me, I, th I feel like there are at least three components that most people can agree on. And the first one of those is, well, a good economy, right? I mean, a successful presidency in part is measured by how well the economy does over that four-year or eight-year period, right? Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, a lot of people have this assumption that that is very much within the, the president's control. And certainly Donald Trump seems to think he can bring back jobs and create, you know, three, four percent economic growth. And, you know, I, I certainly and I think a lot of political scientists would push back against that and say, well, you know, the economy kind of does its own thing and government can make some difference at the margins. But. That's a, a lot of that's outside of the president's control. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that part of this it goes back to what we what, what scholars have studied for a long time, which is, you know, where does presidential power come from? Right. Because 
depending on what you think about power is how you're going to try to define and think about success. Um, and I think that model of, you know, what can presidents uh, get through kind of comes from Richard Neustadt. He writes this really important book and argues that what makes a president successful is his ability to persuade or to bargain. And while he's going to say you can't bargain on your knees, that you still need to think about real power comes from this ability to get other people to do what you want them to do. And what's fascinating is he argues then that the president himself is very weak, right? <laughs> right? That he can't do a lot of things. And so that's why he has to go outside of those channels. Uh, and then a few years later, Howell is going to come along another scholar and argue that actually power comes from presidents getting things done unilaterally. And I think that's what has ended up happening in the 100 days is, is it has tended to push presidents towards the how model, um, towards the unilateral model, towards the let's see how many executive orders we can get passed, you know, how many things can we change immediately. Uh, but in all honesty, as you note, um, you know, the economy, for instance, the economy today in still large part is going to be defined by Barack Obama's presidency, not uh, Trump's presidency. Right. Yeah, there's definitely a big lag there. You know, I think another component, though, is uh, uh, sort of the lack of any sort of major international crisis, especially uh, one that goes fairly badly. Uh, would you say that that's, a, that's another good uh, indicator or benchmark for presidential success? I agree. I mean, at least in the sense that it doesn't bring you any negatives, right, for sure. Yeah. You know, it, it, I mean, I'm thinking like, and, and a lot of times this is sort of outside of the president's control as well. I mean, on 9-11, you know, I mean, George Bush came in, George W. Bush came in as, you know, not really being a foreign policy president, not interested in that, much more domestically oriented, and then boom, 9-11, and all of a sudden the entire presidency is is changed. And so that was, you know, almost exclusively outside of his control, though you can argue that his response, you know, wars in, in Afghanistan and Iraq was definitely within his control. But, you know, things sometimes happen, whether it's 9-11 or the North Korea or Syrian situation currently, that we don't have nearly as much control over a president's don't as they would like. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, as a matter of fact, you know, and the international policy for Bush is kind of a, is a double-edged. It helped him as well. I mean, he was still reeling from the 2000 recount, right? Mm -hmm. His ability to be considered legitimate. And that goes away in 2001. Yeah, definitely. And those, those approval ratings shoot way up there. And then, of course, Katrina happens and they go way down. But, right. <laughs> but you know, there's definitely a roller coaster type ride. Uh, you know, I, there's one other thing I think that is a generally agreed upon uh, measure of whether a presidency is successful or not, and that's uh, the presence or absence of some sort of a major scandal. You know, whether it's the now you can argue to the extent of whether the Benghazi thing is a major scandal. Certainly, a lot of conservatives would say it is, or the Monica Lewinsky thing, or here's a clear, clearly major scandal, the, the Watergate or the Iran-Contra things. I mean, that sort of thing comes up and it really sort of diminishes uh, any presidency. Well, it takes away from their ability to get other things done, right? Yeah. There's only so much political air. Um, and when you're already trying to huff and puff through those first hundred days to get things done, any kind of major scandal um, can, can knock you back. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of fascinating about Trump, he doesn't, it doesn't seem to phase him in the same way that earlier presidents does. I mean, if you think about just Michael Flynn alone, I think for most other presidents would have been a moment that would have derailed any other presidents. Right. And he just sort of 
pushes right through that sort of thing, you know, and, and obviously we still have, you know, a lot, potentially a lot of other shoes to drop with this Russia, multiple Russia investigations. And I think it remains to be seen the extent to which this could uh, diminish the, uh, the Trump administration and limit his ability to do the sort of things that he wants to do. Well, I mean, I'm still reeling from the fact that in the first 100 days, Trump is going to accuse the Obama administration of wiretapping him, right? Yeah. I mean, there is a moment, you know, you have Michael Flynn going on and you attempt to spin it around and say, well, you know, I'm getting wiretapped. Right. Uh, and then your press secretary has to come out and say, well, when he says wiretapped, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mean he didn't really mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You I mean, know, imagine if President Obama had said that. Yeah, I, would, I, mean, I, uh, I don't imagine that we would still be having this conversation. No, no, I can't. No, he was in the first hundred days. Not, not at all. But, but you know, aside from those, I think three big things. I, I think once you get past that, a lot depends on a person's ideology, a person's policy views. For instance, here's a great example. I think if you're a judicial conservative. You see Donald Trump's appointment of Gorsuch to the Supreme Court as a major positive accomplishment. But to me and my fellow liberals, it's a, you know, it's kind of a disaster, essentially. <laughs> and there are a lot of things like that. I mean, like, for instance, I felt that President Obama's environmental initiatives were incredibly important and very positive things, whereas many conservatives saw them as a disaster. Yeah, I think that's where you have to be careful because it's easy to be blinded from the empirical reality by our ideological preferences. Yeah. Uh, you know, so if, if, if somebody is accomplishing something, and you know, in other words, if we want to mate the metric, you're accomplishing things, we have to be careful that we're not saying, well, it's only the things that count are the ones that I like. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, 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 you know, I think that's just, just really important to keep that, to keep that in mind, even going back to FDR, you know, there are still a number of conservatives who would say he is the guy who set us on the road to ruin, you know, created this massive governmental apparatus and uh, his presidency was just a horrible thing, you know, and well, the- I, th- I think Jay and I might be on a similar page there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And of course, and we've talked about before, so very much depends on Congress. I mean, you take a look at presidents who've accomplished a lot. And the two that, to me, immediately spring to mind are FDR and and LBJ. And they had these massive congressional majorities. Now, granted, back then, there were more conservative Democrats than there are today. But still, it was a lot easier, I think, for them to push through their agendas than it would be for, say, Donald Trump, because even though technically Republicans control both branches, they don't have that filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. And there, we can clearly see these divisions between sort of the Tea Party Republicans or, the, sorry, the Freedom Caucus Republicans and the, the, the more moderate Republicans that make it difficult to get things done, like, obviously, the repeal and replace of Obamacare. Yeah, and and that's one of the things that's kind of fascinating as we sit here and we think about the first hundred days because, you know, it, any president can take unilateral action and they can do a lot of things, but the next president at the stroke of a pen can undo it and just take. I mean, you could talk to Obama. We could we could interview Obama if he'd come on, and he could talk about the number of things that Trump has undone of his because he wasn't able to get it done. But take a look at the one lasting achievement he's had. It was not an executive action. It was a congressional action. It was the Affordable Health Care Act. It's a whole lot trickier uh, to undo, to redo uh, congressional action than it is those unilateral moments. Yeah. And so when you're looking at the first hundred days, you're looking at the first year as we move forward, it, I think it'll be a better metric to see you know, what can he get passed. And you're right. It's going to be more difficult today 
um, when you have a Republican Party that's having a civil war. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, finally on this, let's let's think about, you know, what we what we feel the likelihood of a successful Trump presidency might be and what sort of things maybe President Trump could do that might make it more likely for him to accomplish some things. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that, Trey? Well, I think one is just going to be, you know, lifespan. If uh, if another <laughs> Supreme Court justice um, decides uh, that their time yeah. on the court is over, I think that alone, you know, getting two appointees could cement Trump as being very successful in his first term. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting to me, and some people have pointed this out, that what many conservatives see as Donald Trump's great greatest success to date, and that's, the, again, the Gorsuch appointment, is something that he basically farmed out to, and he didn't really have much involvement, you know, direct involvement in. And, and it, whereas the things that he it has been very directly involved in haven't gone nearly as well. I'm not sure what that means exactly. But, uh, you know, I, I think to me, I expected Donald Trump to have a very rocky start simply because experience matters. You you can't come into the job with no previous experience in elective office and then just expect to hit the ground running. And And even Donald Trump has acknowledged that, you know, saying that he's underestimated the difficulty of the job and, and the complexity of legislation. Now, I think every president that you talk to says, yeah, I didn't know it would be this big of a job. But the Donald Trump having that lack of experience that makes things so much harder. And so these stumbles, to me, aren't exactly surprising. They're the sort of things that political scientists would expect. Yes. And I, th I think one of the things that Trump is really facing that's going to hurt his ability to be successful is his ability to seemingly reach out and have conversations with members of Congress, right? So, I mean, even yesterday um, in his big rally, he's calling out Republicans. And he was calling out Republicans and Trump. Uh, on uh, Twitter, we're going to come after you, yeah. right? That is not going to make people want to work with you, um, especially when you, I mean, we're not talking about the opposition party. We're talking about your party. Yeah. Um, and he, he is going to have to work at that. You can't tweet your way. I mean, you can tweet your way into the office. Um, we can talk more about that. But you can't tweet your way to legislation. You can't bully your way to legislation. Um, through just tr uh, telling your own party, hey, we're coming after you. Yeah. And, you know, there, I think there are some other things as well that I don't know that he can change a whole lot. Like, for instance, the fact that he got into office, you know, pushing back against elites of both parties, uh, that's, that's not going to change. The fact that he seems to be a deeply incurious person with a short attention span, no policy knowledge, uh, that, I don't know, is going to change. He doesn't seem interested in changing that. Uh, the fact that his uh, approval rating is so low, the tough that he's already, uh, the, the fact that he's already, I think, damaged his credibility, that's hard to rebuild. Uh, the fact that he's impulsive, the fact that he has such thin skin, and the fact that he has what I would say almost a, like a, a Nixonian level of insecurity, I think these are personality traits or just facts on the ground that he can't do a lot to change, really. No. And, you know, right. I mean, right now he's at 42 percent. I mean, he's the lowest of our modern presidents at the, after the first hundred day on the approval rating. I think I mean, he does have a few things that can help him. I mean, one is, OK, his approval rating is 42 percent. But when you take a look at the people who voted for him, almost none of them have defected in the first right. hundred days. Good point. And that is that's that's key um, if you're Trump. Right. Because that's that's the base that he needs for a reelection and to get things done. 
Um, so, I mean, he does have that going for him. The other thing that he has going for him right now is, is that I think Democrats are in the unfortunate position that Republicans were uh, under Obama in that they are all for you know, the not Trump agenda. But I'm not sure what's really holding them together. The fissures in the Democratic Party are not uh, far below the surface. And they're going to come back to the fore as soon as we have another election. And in those moments, you know, I think that's where Trump can be more successful. Yeah, I, I think I think you have a, a good point there. You know, I think there are some other things that are uh, that are in Donald Trump's favor. For instance, I've never doubted that he's a, a smart guy. I, I, I think he's he very, doesn't read. So, yeah, well, you know, yeah. <laughs> But I mean, he's also he's also very flexible. He's not tied in to any kind of ideology. And I think, you know, he has a deep desire to be seen as a as a winner and even a historically great president. And I think maybe that gives him some room to maneuver. And, and I actually expect that he will improve. Uh, uh, he's learning on the job. I don't I don't necessarily think he's ever going to be even an adequate president. But I think that this first 100 days is not going to be indicative of the rest of his time in office. And so my fellow liberals who just expect things to go from bad to worse. I, I don't necessarily think that's going to happen. Of course, a lot can occur. You know, we don't know what's going on with the Russia investigation and so forth. But I think there's going to be some general level of improvement and he'll end up being uh, bad, but not truly historically awful. At least that's my hope, because I think we're with him, you know, for the next 1360 days or so. Yeah, no, I think we are with him for that long because I, I do know there are some people out there that are hoping, you know, he's going to be so unsuccessful that he's just going to get up and go home. And I think that's just that's wishful thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are some things I think that I hope that actually they'll consider doing in the Trump administration that would be helpful. Maybe I shouldn't be offering this advice as a liberal, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, for instance, this this governing by chaos sort of thing that President Trump's doing clearly isn't working. I think if he hired or he empowered a chief of staff to sort of clean up some of this chaos and get people on message, that would be helpful. Um, if he actually took some time to learn about policy, though, that might be a, a pretty difficult sort of thing. Or if he tried to learn a little bit more about how the process works. And I think he is kind of getting into that a little bit more. He's learning as, as things fail and then he wants to know why, you know, um, but but also, and here's a real concrete thing, I think they need to start staffing up the executive branch. You know, I mean, right now, the Trump administration is historically bad at filling a lot of these positions. And the president said, well, I don't think we they need to be filled. I think he's just covering. And it's the fact that he came in without much of a deep bench because he didn't have that experience. And he brought in a lot of outsiders and it's going to take some time. But you need people in these positions to get stuff done. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I don't even know if it was just the bench. I've thought about this one a long time. I think in part it was – I think Trump – you know, when you haven't done something before, it's easy to think that you can do it cheaper and more efficiently mm -hmm. than the person who's been doing it for 20 years. Um, and I think part of this just might be, you know, Trump looked at this and said, well, you know, I can run my business X, Y, and Z way. I can do the same exact thing in the White House. And I think part of it may not even just be the bench. He was holding him open, thinking this was going to be a successful strategy. I, I, I actually give him some credit on the front that I think this wasn't an accident. I think it was on purpose. So it's okay. failing, but I think it was on purpose. Well, and you know, in the past, 
a lot of people have talked about how Donald Trump can never admit mistakes or, or pull back from a position and so forth. And, and I think largely that's true. But here, I think, is an instance where, I mean, he has publicly said this was a bigger job than I expected and so forth. And that, to me, suggests that maybe he does have some room to grow and improve. And again, given, well, given what he is interested in in terms of policy, to me, that might not be a good thing. But if you're a, if you're a conservative, especially if you're maybe a conservative with some strong views on immigration and so forth, maybe that, you know, that is sort of some light at the end of the tunnel for you. Well, you know, even on even for lefts, uh, leftists, I mean, he he does have some of the things that even Bernie Sanders was interested in. I mean, he is looking at NAFTA. He is looking at he blows up TPP. So, I mean, he has made some moves that I think might even cross the aisle. I guess I guess, I guess potentially, you know, people talked about infrastructure and so forth. But I think as you've you pointed out earlier that, uh, you know, he's already burned a lot of bridges and it's going to be awfully tough for him to try to. To try, to try to, I was going to say mend those fences, mix my metaphors much, um, but you get what I'm <laughs> saying there, you know, so uh, I, I don't know that that's really in his skill set. He's much more of an attacker than a conciliator, but but I think, uh, I think we'll see. Yeah, I agree. All right. Uh, next, let's turn to the recently, recently released Trump tax plan, though, you know, at one page and 200 and 30 total words. Yes, I counted. It's not, <laughs> it's not really a plan, right? I mean, it's really a really, really broad outline. Now, President Trump has said from the beginning that reforming the tax code was a primary goal of his. And, you know, this is something there's bipartisan consensus on as well. Both Democrats and Republicans agree that the U.S. tax code is too big, too complex, and it's been far too long since it's been cleaned up, over 30 years, in fact. But, that's really where the consensus ends. There are plenty of disagreements concerning what reform should look like, both between the parties, which you'd expect, but also within the parties as well. And so we're going to take a look at what the first, what the broad parameters of Trump, Trump's tax reform are. For instance, he wants to reduce the number of brackets from seven to three and cut that top bracket from 39.6 to 35 percent. He wants to nearly double the standard deduction to $24,000, eliminate the alternative minimum tax, or AMT, and the estate tax, cut the top rate on the capital gains tax from 28 to 20%, eliminate all tax breaks except for the mortgage interest and charitable giving deductions, and finally, cut the top corporate tax rate from 39% to 15%. Now, before we get into the likelihood of any of this happening, uh, let's let's think about or well, let's look at whether or not we should want it to happen in the first place. So, Trey, if President Trump could just wave his magic wand and make all this happen, would the country be better off? You know, I'm conflicted about this. Okay, <laughs> uh, because there's there's half of what he's doing that I actually I like I, I, I like deeply, um, but there's another half of this that I don't like. Um, you know, since World War II, federal debt levels, I mean, they have been just increasing at an exponential rate, um, according to the CBO. Uh, and this is, and it's going to continue. As a matter of fact, we are going to, we're going to head over the W, we're at World War II levels right now. We're going to be past it, according to projections. And that assumes that, you know, heaven forbid, we don't start shooting at North Korea or entering into another conflict. 
Um, so I think it's good that we're, he's thinking about, we're talking about, and we're talking about cutting the budget. The problem with his plan is, is that really he's all of those cuts are just going into three major areas, which can be summed up as defense. Uh, and so there's, there's really not, I think, as a whole, I think this is a mistake. He's taking some, some really good conservative ideas, and then he is ballooning all of that money in, into defense. Yeah, you know, I I think it used there used to be a case where Republicans were sort of the green eye shade, very fiscally disciplined sort of sort of uh, party, and and I think really we've gotten away from that. And now there are some there are some conservatives who say tax cuts will pay for themselves. I mean, even the Treasury Secret- Secretary said that recently, uh, Mnuchin, but. The fact of the matter is, is even conservative economists say, well, you know, tax cuts can spur economic growth. And and I believe that, but they can't really spur for the most part enough economic growth to pay for themselves. And so what we end up with and what we've seen from the 1980s on are a whole lot of tax cuts that are called tax reform, but it's really just tax cuts. But no changes in spending. And as you point out, that debt really balloons. Since 2012, our national debt has been over 100% of GDP. And GDP, it's not quite $18 trillion. That's a lot of money, you know. Uh, and, yeah. you know, one of the reasons that's a big problem is we have to pay interest on that debt. And currently, around 6% of our budget is interest on the debt. That's around $223 billion. And that's just, you know, that's just going up. And so that's a real, real problem. Well, if you take a look at the surplus deficit, uh, you know, for the last, since the 1980s and going forward, you know, it becomes clear, you know, Reagan's idea that we're going to have a bunch of tax cuts and this is going to bring the deficit down. He basically, he has to make a deal with Democrats. The Democrats, you know, control Congress. So he gets tax cuts, they get program spending. And what we see is, is the deficit goes up. As a matter of fact, if you look in history, the only the only time in recent history where the deficit has gone down is when Clinton and Republicans had to negotiate um, in the 90s. And that's when we're going to see the deficit actually come down in a meaningful way. And I think one of the problems of the last of the Obama administration is, is the deficit was getting bigger because in large part, we still had Bush era tax cuts combined with new levels of spending. Yeah. I mean, and, and and again, it used to be the case where, where Republicans would push really hard for for cuts, and it, we could even see we would even see some cuts in government. And certainly, there are a number of Republicans who believe in that, but uh, cutting programs is so much more politically difficult than just cutting people's taxes and it's just sort of you know letting the future generation pay for those cuts. Right. I mean, I think what the Democrats and Republicans have come together on and this and I think this is worrisome from an analyst point of view is right. Republicans continue to get their tax cuts. Democrats continue to get their programs. Uh, and then what the CBO tells us is, hey, wait a second, if you guys want to get this down. So if we want to in a few years get this down to 40 percent of the GDP from 100, it's going to require either a 17 percent increase in revenue uh, or a 15 percent uh, reduction in spending. Yeah. And you know what party is going to be able to get around? Either, and that's if we, everything stays the same. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's, you know, that almost never happens, right? And, you know, there are some folks who say, well, the problem with these CBO projections is they don't take into account what's called dynamic scoring. And, and it's, it's a little technical, but basically the idea is that oftentimes when the CBO does projections, they assume everything stays the same and they don't 
make big assumptions about how tax cuts will increase uh, economic activity and growth. And a lot of conservatives especially say, well, this is going to have an effect on growth and you need to take that into account. But And I think there's something to that. But the problem is, well, what sort of a multiplier effect on growth do we assume? And of course, people who are for these cuts want to assume a much bigger effect than I think past history would suggest we're going to get. Yeah, I would suggest that that's very much like the thinking of the person who wants to get out of debt going, you know what, I don't need to change my spending. I'm just going to make some more money. I'm going to have a side hustle uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm going to make some more money and pay that that credit card down. And that's just not the way it's going to work. So while I can understand Republican, I mean, again, I, I'm, I'm conservative, I'm sympathetic on that front. Uh, the, the data just does not suggest that the makeup from tax cuts can overcome the amount of spending increases we've had on programs. Yeah. And, you know, let's talk a little bit more specifically about the politics of it. I mean, what I think is going to happen is I believe that there will be some tax cuts that are passed, particularly a cut in that top corporate tax rate, which at 39 percent is pretty much the highest in the world now. Now, because of all the loopholes, the top, the actual effective rate is around 27 percent and change. But that's still really high compared to the other uh, rich developed countries in the OECD. I think there's going to be some action on that, maybe some movement on some other cuts. But in terms of the other part of it, you know, taking away those loopholes, I don't really see much of that happening at all. And I've said from the beginning, they're talking tax reform, but what's going to happen is they're going to call tax cuts, tax reform and move on. Yeah, I mean, hope springs eternal. I would like to hope that Republicans can get together on uh, thinking about how we can have some spending cuts. But you're right, that's not going to be a popular position, especially depending on how much political capital we want to continue to spend on the Affordable Health Care Act. And I, I, I do think, I mean, one of the questions about what's going to happen in the tax policy depends on how much we're going to be dealing with the wall and how much are we going to be putting on the Affordable Health Care Act. Yeah, a- absolutely. And those those things clearly remain to be seen. Uh, now, what do you think about the argument that we hear from some people on the left saying that one of the big problems with this sort of this sort of tax cut program is that this, the money from this goes disproportionately to those at the top. And what it's going to do is exacerbate uh, already a pretty bad situation with regards to economic inequality. You know, that is the million dollar question. And it's a difficult one to get at. I think one of the, the misconceptions um, on the left is the idea that w- the more money you have, that you kind of like put it under your mattress. <laughs> so, you know, right. I get money and it goes underneath the mattress and that's it. One of the things that happens, so if you have more money than what you're spending on consumer goods, um, generally this money goes back into the market, right? So you are going to be owning things, businesses. Um, you're going to have stock, which allows company to make and produce uh, devices that other people are going to buy, right? So I think one problem you got to be careful about is this idea that when people get money that especially what you might want to call the uh, the upper echelons, that it's just going to kind of disappear into the ether. And it doesn't. It comes back into the economy. Now, we can have more conversations about your overarching question there, which is, you know, how does income equality uh, affect this? But I, I, they're not just they're not just holding on to it. And I think that's one misconception. Yeah. No, I think that's a, it's a really good thing to point out. And, you know, this brings up uh, what's really, I believe, a fundamental difference of opinion between liberals and conservatives as to sort of what drives the economy, what drives economic growth. I mean, a lot of liberals argue that really consumer demand is the ultimate driver and it makes up somewhere around 70 percent personal consumption, 70 percent of all economic activity. And so 
Based on that fundamental premise, a lot of liberals say, well, what we want are policies that favor the lower and middle classes, put the most money directly in their pockets, whereas a lot of conservatives say, well, you grow an economy by empowering the owners of capital, and what they're going to do, as you point out, is not stick this in a mattress somewhere, but they're going to invest and innovate with the money. In other words, it's on that side that you get the real engines of growth, as it's a lot of conservatives call them, the job creators, essentially. And I think a lot of times when people have this argument, they're kind of talking past each other because they have these fundamentally different premises about what, how you grow an economy. Oh, agreed. And, and as a result, that they can't seem to come together. Now, I would argue, actually, that you need it on both sides, yeah. that in, in the kind of the free market ideal, you know, you're producing things, so you need people, the upper echelons who have that kind of money. But if, right, if I don't have the money to purchase their goods, that's not going to go anywhere. So you really want to see tax rates come down uniformly um, so that that can go back into the market. Uh, but the problem, of course, is right here, that doesn't seem to be what the Trump plan is attempting to do. Yeah. And, you know, I think another good argument, well, I think maybe the best argument for uh, increased I guess, social spending that benefits lower and middle classes actually does have to do with, with innovation, because the argument is essentially that if you give people the security to know that, for instance, if they go out and try to you know, set up this new startup, they're not going to lose their health insurance and other things they're not mm -hmm. going to, then you can perhaps spur a lot more innovation and economic activity. And of course, that's exactly what we want. Yeah. And, and that's a long standing and a fascinating debate. I mean, as a matter of fact, I think there are a lot of guys on the left and the right who can get behind things like the, you know, a minimum guaranteed income, for example, yeah. um, you know, kind of get away from lots of different kinds of social spending and say, look, which is usually in some kind of negative income tax arrangement. Uh, but those are just not, they're not politically viable currently. Yeah. And I think a part of it, I, I, I feel is that, is that much of this policy is being driven by the same sort of group of people who are, you know, called crony capitalism. A lot of people will use that term. And I really think this is perhaps an area where the president's lack of policy knowledge uh, and expertise really hurts him because he's surrounded himself with the, the same sort of people who are going to be pushing for things that I feel might be very good for them, might be good for Goldman Sachs, but what's good for Goldman Sachs and, and good Goldman Sachs CEOs and top executives isn't necessarily good for the, the entire country. Right. And, and I would like to add that what they're always arguing for is not what we on the right are going to consider free markets. Yeah. And I think that that's a really important, important point, because I, I know you, you have certainly a, uh, I would say, a reasonably strong libertarian streak. And that's something that sort of the left and the right can can agree on to a certain extent. This this crony capitalism that has sort of taken over uh, Washington, D.C., where we have sort of uh, some people call it a Wall Street run government. And that's something that if you believe in free markets is anathema to you. And that's something that a lot of folks on the left have a big problem with as well. And I don't see it really Given the people that Donald Trump has chosen to be his top advisors, I don't see that going away anytime soon. No, and as a matter of fact, I mean, if you look at kind of a great comparative case, I mean, one of the, the original sins, if you will, of uh, the Soviet Union's transition to, I'm going to put it in quote unquote capitalism, was it really effectively just moved to crony cap yeah. cronyism. Uh, but of course, I mean, let's not talk about Russians too much in the Trump administration yeah. right now. Yeah, exactly. And you know, what, one thing I just wanted to mention to folks, if you're 
interested in sort of a very, I think, engaging and definitely a very liberal view on this whole issue. There's a documentary that was made a few years ago by a guy named Robert Reich, who was a former Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration. Now, he's a little too left for me on some things, and he can be a little too preachy for me. I'm not quite as far left as he is, but he came out with this documentary called Inequality for All. I think it's a really fascinating look at it. I'd actually encourage my friends on the right to check it out. It might make your head explode at a couple of points. But but I think there's really some uh, a fascinating look at this whole issue of of tax policy and inequality and so forth. So I would encourage people to check it out. Okay, well that I think about does it for today. Trey, thank you so much for uh, stopping by, guest hosting, uh, pinch hitting for Jay. I really appreciate. It. I thought I thought uh, I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it. I loved being here. I hope to come back. All right. Well, uh, I also want to remind everyone that sponsors. Really important for keeping the show going. So we do hope you'll check out the two sponsors of today's show. The first is Upside.com. And remember to use that promo code BizTrip, B-I-Z-T-R-I-P, for a $200 Amazon gift card and Blue Apron. Go to blueapron.com slash TPG and get your first three meals free with free shipping. Again, blueapron.com slash TPG. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks everyone for listening. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. If you haven't checked out our Twitter feed, it's gotten a lot more active. Thanks to Trey. Thank you, Trey, for, for helping out with that. You've posted some really engaging and interesting stuff. Been a lot of fun. Uh, and finally, we are very thankful for the great listeners who have generously supported the show through their donations. If you'd like to join them, you can do that through the Patreon or PayPal links on our website, politicsguys.com. And if money's tight or you're already a financial supporter, please consider hitting that share icon on your podcast app to pass this episode along to your friends and followers. Leaving ratings and reviews of the show on your app and sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also really helps to spread the word, which broadens our listener base and helps us to attract the donations and advertisers that make it possible for us to keep on bringing you the politics guys. Jay and I will be back with a new show next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.